Welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. This is Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. Today is the latest episode of our series Chat About Geopolitics and Trade, or Chat GPT, with guest presenter Punit Ozo. Punit is going to be talking to Stomatis Tsanis, CEO of Sea Energy Maritime Holdings Corp. You will hear from Stomatis about two recent examples of how shipping has needed to adjust to abnormal situations brought about by geopolitics. You will also hear about how shipping can use artificial intelligence and find out why Stomatis does not believe that dry bulk and tanker shipping companies need to have a network of offices around the world. Now I'd like to hand over to Pune. Thank you so much, Marcus. It is my tremendous pleasure, in fact, to invite the second guest in our monthly podcast on chat about geopolitics and trade, Mr. Stanthanis. Tamaris, welcome to the podcast. And I would really, really enjoy this podcast, I'm sure, because it has been a pleasure not just to know you since the time I've been in shipping, but also since the time we studied together in the CAS Business School, which is now the Bayes Business School. For the listeners who don't know, we are both classmates from London and it is just a testament to the shipping industry that we are able to collaborate on so many levels now. And Stamatis, welcome to the chat GPD, my chat GPD, which I call chat about geopolitics and trade. Stamatis is the CEO of Sea Energy Holdings and also a legendary person in the maritime industry. And it's a pleasure to talk to him. Welcome, Stamatis. Thank you, Puneet. It's, uh, thank you for having us. Thank you for organizing this um, great uh, concept of uh, podcast. It's a really great pleasure for me to attend. Brilliant. As I was thinking about this idea of this podcast, you were actually one of the first persons I contacted, I remember. And you mentioned to me two things. First of all, you said this is something which is very interesting. And secondly, you said you must try and maintain it at bite-sized levels and don't make it a long podcast. So we actually are keeping it to that and keeping it to around 20 to 25 minutes at the most. So I think we can start off straight away. And uh, maybe I can ask you, how do you see and what is your view on geopolitics and how it interacts with trade in general? Because this is a topic which I think is seldom discussed. But I would love to hear from a shipping CEO's perspective. How do you see geopolitics and trade interacting from your point of view? I think that's a great question, and um, I'll try to keep this brief and concise. It is obvious that geopolitical um, turmoil is always a very big issue for shipping because it disrupts the normalized uh, trading route. So right now, the demand for seaborne transportation services and the supply of ships is usually adjusted on the basis of current uh, pattern, the current trading pattern. So unless something material changes, you know, this pattern is usually not interrupted. However, when you have geopolitics uh, affecting the current um, pattern, that creates uh, uh, an abnormal situation whereby shipping needs to adjust, the demand needs to adjust, uh, and of course the supply of ships needs to adjust as well. So it's one of the most critical points. Um, I would say it's one of the most critical demand elements outside of, you know, the normal demand for uh, products. Uh, that we see that affects uh, shipping uh, altogether in a very material manner. Perfect. So obviously, it's a it's an important space. And one of the things which I do tell the students as well um, is that this is the space in geopolitics where economic considerations kind of take a backseat in some cases. 
Um, so if I actually ask again with regard to geopolitics and from your vast experience in the industry, have you seen any examples which you can share with the listeners of the geopolitical impact on trade flows, which has actually either changed a trade flow, uh, maybe even demolished a trade flow or created a new trade flow? Um, that would be a very interesting uh, way for you to exa- exemplify the whole idea of geopolitics and trade. Yeah, Of course. Um, there are two recent examples, very recent examples, both attributed um, attributable to uh, the invasion of uh, Russia in uh, Ukraine. One has to do with the um, transportation of oil and oil products, and the other one has to do with the transportation of uh, grains. Let me start with uh, oil and oil products and how that has affected um, the trading routes, and that has led into this huge rally that we have seen in the rates of the tanker ships. So, first of all, as you know, uh, immediately after the invasion of uh, Russia in Ukraine, um, the Russian oil became under a certain uh, embargo, sanctions, and uh, all these things affecting direct trade. Um, Of course, certain um, existing uh, things like the pipelines uh, continue to run for a certain period of time, but that automatically led to a massive increase of the ton mile. And the reason is that um, Russia, instead of selling directly into Europe through pipelines or to its closest countries, uh, they decided to, and of course it, it became a matter of need uh, based on the sanctions, they were loading crude oil on bigger ships uh, from various Russian areas, uh, either in the Baltic or in the Black Sea, and they were transporting crude oil instead of the closest countries like Europe, uh, all the way to India and China. As you can imagine, the initial transportation, the initial ton mile effect um, doubled or tripled uh, just for the crude oil. Now, in India and China, that crude oil that was exported out of Russia got refined into refined products like gasoline, like diesel, like jet fuel, and that was re-imported back to Europe without having the sanctions element. So the origin of the initial cargo out of Russia not only increased its ton mile uh, by its transportation to India and China by two or three times, but also on the way back from these countries, it went another two or three times as a refined product. So that led into a massive increase of the ton mile demand for oil and oil products, just because the war happened. And of course, that led into the market going from anywhere into the single digits of um, freight rates in tankers, something in the region of six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars that were in the first quarter of uh, 2022 to where it went at an average of 70 to 100, 150 thousand dollars a day. (laughs) As you can imagine, that increase in rates made colossal fortunes uh, for the tanker owners that were patient. On top of the ton mile, the sanction element also created the so-called two-tier fleet, which means one tier was the tier of ships that operated with the Russian cargoes, both the crude oil and the oil products. And the other one was the one that um, operated uh, under the sanction element. So the two-tier element created a big supply squeezes, both in the white fleet, put it this way, also in the grey fleet. And having a massive increase in demand as well as a squeeze in the supply through the factors that I just mentioned 
automatically created um, circumstances where the tanker rates went into these historical high levels that we have not really seen since the beginning of the new millennium. Now let me move into the dry bulk element. Of course, as you can understand, immediately after uh, the invasion, uh, all the grain exports out of um, Ukraine were halted, and Ukraine is providing a big amount of grains into Europe, into Africa, and in other countries. When that automatically got halted, uh, they went into a situation where they created a growing corridor in order to feed the countries that were depending on the grain from Ukraine. However, in order for the grain corridor to work, there was a massive disruption in uh, in the entrance of the Black Sea, whereby approximately 250 Panamax, Kamsarmax, and uh, Supramax vessels, dry vessels of course, were uh, waiting to either go upwards or downwards, northbound or southbound, in order to load or transport the grains to the countries needed. That created a big supply uh, squeeze where when you have 250 ships automatically waiting and uh, being held in a congested area like uh, the entrance of the Black Sea, that also created a big supply squeeze uh, for the supermaxes and Kamsarmaxes, and that had a cascading effect into the dry bulk shipping altogether. However, that has been recently unwound because, uh, as you know, um, Russia and uh, automatically and, and Ukraine decided to discontinue the Green Corridor. So all these 250, 240 ships that were bound, that were congested in that area, were automatically released. So when you have the release of so much tonnage back into uh, the open market, automatically the rates from, let's say, mid-high $20,000 a day have dropped into the single digits, and that has affected the market downwards. So, so far, we have seen a massive increase in the tanker market from single digits all the way to double, high double or triple digits, but thousands, of course. In respect of Kamsarmax Supramaxes, we saw a peak because of the congestion that has been unwound. So, all this geopolitical element, which is the most recent one we have in history, and that has to do with the invasion of one country into another, has created big disruptions um, in the freight uh, trading routes of both tankers and dry, dry box ships. Absolutely. And fascinating examples. And thank you so much. Um, I also feel that um, this also kind of proves a very strange theory that people have that, you know, when things do go wrong and there are inefficiencies because of any events happening or destruction, in fact, shipping tends to gain, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, because of those disruptions. And and I think a war is exactly in the same space. Uh, we are still not looking at the rebuilding space at some point of time. That's going to have a huge uh, geopolitical impact as well at some point of time. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I'll come to the next aspect, which I think is very interesting. If you remember, and I'm sure you do, both of us sitting in the class in, in our business school and Michael Tambakis showing us a video of the prize uh, by Daniel Jurgen, uh, a story of the oil. And, you know, we probably at least got a glimpse of what uh, a commodity can actually do in terms of trade, politics and economics all put together. But the technology at that point of time was essentially limited in terms of the visibility that it could offer us. Uh, today, there is a lot more technology. There's a lot more research tools. There's a lot more availability of data. Um, how do you see and how do you use 
these technology spaces, data spaces to manage these geopolitical risks and maybe to even look at potential opportunities like you mentioned about uh, a spike in the uh, tanker uh, rates and probably a drop in the in the uh, dry bulk rates if the grain has stopped moving. How do you how do you see technology and research helping you as a commercial person and your team in managing these geopolitical risks? That'll be fascinating for our students to know and our listeners to know as well. Yeah, of course. First of all, Puneet, let me say, start by saying that uh, you very well said uh, that Michael Tambakis was showing us a video video through a video machine and a video cassette, which I remind you that it doesn't exist anymore. So <laughs> let us be a little bit mindful about our age here for the younger students. But uh, yeah, a video is still a video. <laughs> I must remind the listeners that it was 1997. So yeah. it is when the video was there. We're not, we're not talking about recent times here. We just want to clarify that the CAS Business School does use modern equipment now. They don't use video cassettes anymore, just so that we are clear. Yeah, DVD at, at best. So, at the best, uh, yes. Correct. So I must say that uh, there's a lot of technology, and we in Synergy Group, we are using uh, the technology ever since uh, 2015. We, are, uh, we have been one of the pioneers in using uh, remote performance monitoring systems for uh, our ships and also uh, artificial intelligence, which we introduced in 2019 on board the vessels. Um, remote performance monitoring systems uh, combined with weather routing, uh, of course, makes the fleet more economical and more efficient because it operates the vessel and it also predicts weather routing and currents and uh, everything associated with the operation of the vessel. So that by itself is very, very fundamental in the operation of vessels and makes it more efficient and more environmentally friendly by reducing the consumption and, of course, the emission of uh, CO2. Um, at the same time, artificial intelligence helps us predict errors and uh, malfunctions in the engine room on the basis of certain readings. That's helpful as well, especially when you operate a middle-aged uh, fleet like uh, we do. Now, going forward, in respect of all the data that we have been receiving as an office, uh, to be honest, uh, Puneet, all this data is pretty much useless if you don't have the right people analyzing it. So the big concept uh, behind data here is not to continue being, um, you know, retroactive, but to be proactive. So for us, the usage of data uh, and the proactiveness we are uh, we're using about it is the fact that when we automatically see or foresee a certain issue about the operation of the vessel or anything associated with its uh, technical capacity, we have to act immediately. So. You know, if, if you use all the data and artificial intelligence as a retroactive thing like the moon report of the ships, it's pretty much useless in my opinion. I don't see any value in that. So it's not only about all the set of data that everybody has been receiving, but most importantly, for the right people in the office to be able to analyze that. And here in Synergy, we have a dedicated team which stands in cooperation with the technical and operations department, and that dedicated team deals with data altogether. And data is not only about operation and technical management, but also it's about sustainability. We have entered into a world where all these environmental regulations will bring massive changes in shipping. They have already started and they will continue to bring massive changes in shipping for the next three to five years and certainly until 2050. So unless an office is fully equipped with the right and dedicated people to analyze data and to know how to use all the set of information that we have been receiving daily, then 
it's pretty much useless. So for us, getting the data, establishing the department and making sure that we are being proactive in running the vessels, not only for the environment, for the regulations, but also for economy, economies of scale, uh, efficient running of the vessels, and for being proactive and cost saving. So for us, it's a multifaceted approach altogether that we have been using all this set of data since 2015. So we're already getting into the ninth year of us using all this information. Fantastic. I mean, that's really, really impressive. And and I think that's one of the key things that shipping is changing. And I, I tell this to my students as well, that please don't think that you are going to go and become an operations manager or a chartering manager in shipping, which will not be isolated space. It will actually be incorporating so many new functions, so many new ideas that I think we did not have when we joined the industry at that point of time. So they should be ready for a rough uh, ride, but also an interesting ride going forward. Um, And interestingly, I must say that one of the examples that I recently came across was the BRICS countries and the fact that they've invited six more countries to join in. You know, using some of the data available, I could actually map out a very clear picture of what these BRICS countries are actually trading with each other on the Drabal side and what the BRICS plus alliance will trade with each other had it been around for a while. And I immediately found that there will be a jump of something like close to 18 million tons of trade just because of these six new countries coming in between themselves. And and that's really where it gets. And this is just dry bulk. There's not even considering the oil, which is a major part of that discussion. So I agree with you that, you know, the the proactiveness of technology analytics and, and the data analysis is something which is uh, crucial for us to take calls. And here, I I would like to ask, uh, Stamatis, you mentioned something interesting in a pre-discussion with me, that we must look back in history to navigate the future. And I love that sentence or that uh, comment from you, which I think is deep and also very forward-looking at the same time, connecting you to the roots that you are actually belonging to. So looking back in history to navigate the future, can you expand a little bit on that? Uh, What is it all about, basically? Of course. First of all, we like, uh, both you and I, we like to be practical and not to throw open-ended statements just to show, uh, you know, any sense of wisdom or things like that. So uh, we have to always make a practical element since, you know, all the students uh, will turn into the future uh, employees, executives, entrepreneurs of the future. So we, we really need to guide them as much as possible with the set of information we know right now and, of course, because of history. So looking back, the most important thing, in my opinion, is the supply and demand. It's as simple as that. And my high-level advice to students is the fact that demand for seaborne transportation services has always been rising. It's been very few times in the history of the last, let's say, 25, 30 years where we saw demand for raw materials and finished products to actually go down. So you know, with the exception of uh, the financial crisis or maybe COVID or, you know, certain elements of time, demand has always been going up because the world is expanding, GDP is going up, uh, the population is increasing, you need to feed the population, you need to create infrastructure, you have more planes, more cars, more everything. So you need energy, you need uh, food, uh, you need infrastructure. So shipping will continue to thrive into the future as far as demand is concerned. So anywhere between 0.5 and 8, 9%, you will still have a compounded annual growth in demand for seaborne transportation services. The most important element to what makes or breaks an investment 
in my opinion, is the supply. So in the history, if you go back into the maritime cycles, it was always the supply of ships that has created either the booms or the crisis. So when the markets went well, everybody started to rush into ordering ships, and that has created um, an oversupply cycle, and that has led the market to collapse. Demand was there, but when you automatically have a big tsunami of ships hitting the water, there's only way, and that way is to go down. So always be disciplined about supply, always be disciplined about the way that uh, people are investing. So even in good times where everybody's living in a hype, you have to be very, very well disciplined not to start throwing uh, money around and creating big supply surges, which brings the market down. So it all comes down to demand and supply. What is different now is the fact that the new environmental regulations will make a big portion of the current vessel supply pretty much redundant. And I'm not referring into 2023 or 24 or 25, but we are seeing that the persistence of the IMO, the European Union, and of course, you know, the whole world is that ships will need to be more economical, less CO2 pollutant. So that being said, the effective supply of ships will start to reduce either by the reduction of ships or the reduction of speeds or a combination of both. So in any case, the supply appears to be disciplined for the foreseeable future, and we hope that it will remain in disciplined levels so the freight rates can recover. And any new investment in shipping will make financial sense because right now, especially in dry bulk, in our opinion, investing in new vessels does not make financial sense. So you have to have a big and broader investment considerations before anyone considers any such thing. So when you talk about shipping and you want, when you talk about the history and the future, it's all about demand and supply. It's as simple as that. So everything else, of course, is associated with that, but the fundamentals of the space is demand for seaborne transportation services, for materials, energy, uh, finished products, goods, and of course, the supply of vessels, which in our opinion is usually the most important factor in making or breaking an investment. Absolutely. No, that's uh, that's well said. And I think the supply is, uh, is something which is... Uh, also in the hands of the industry, the demand is usually outside uh, the industry and, and obviously we have limited uh, control over that space. But supply is at least theoretically in our control. And of course, the fragmentation of the industry creates its own challenges. Also, I would like to get your view since you were talking about the environmental regulations. This is a little bit off topic, but it's interesting. Do you actually see a kind of a hard cutoff at some point of time where the ships will simply have to kind of correct course from being the gas guzzlers and then just simply try and, and, and uh, stop consuming these uh, heavy uh, environmentally polluting fuels? Or do you think that there'll be this phased transition which I am always envisaging? I mean, this is more from a perspective that you see uh, things around you and how the ship owners are, are reacting to these regulations. You, I, I would like your views on that. Yes. Right now, in our opinion, there are three big barriers in uh, introducing new fuels into the market. The first one and most important in our opinion is the cost of producing the new fuels and how much actual energy you need to <laughs> to put in order to make a green fuel. So, you know, if you require, for example, 120% of, uh, you know, the finished product, you know, to make uh, a green, um, you know, any green fuel, doesn't make any, <laughs> any logical sense whatsoever if you pollute more to create, uh, you know, the solution. Uh, the second is the financial, which uh, it's still very expensive, and the financial burden 
which might be in the region of uh, 15 to 25% of price of a ship. I don't know whether that is an investment that will ever break even in the life cycle of a vessel, to be honest. Number three, and also very important, is the fact that, you know, the people on board the ships, especially when you talk about dry bulk vessels, they don't have the required sophistication to operate volatile fuels. And in my opinion, that creates an additional risk that people have not really thought about it. Because we are seeing more and more quality seafarers exiting the space. So the overall level of sophistication of the crews is dropping. Of course, the ships are becoming more easy to operate and uh, more automated in all respects. But, you know, when you introduce new stuff that have volatility like ammonia or other things that can create um, explosions, we really have to be careful here. Uh, when we talk about safety of um, seafarers and uh, people in the ports and in the cities that the vessels are calling. So, you know, these three elements, in my opinion, are the kind of barriers. And at the end of the day, the traditional marine fuel of ships is not as bad as people think, especially with newer technology vessels. I mean, the most eco ships of these days can surely have a life cycle of another 15, 20 years without having to be scrapped. So that goes back to my previous point. If an investment is sustainable, which means that the rates are such for a foreseeable period of time in order for that investment to make sense, you don't really need to reinvent the wheel in in fuel types that may have bigger risks into the future. So if rates go back to certain levels that there is a period market in the future where companies can make an adequate return and pay off for that investment, then you really don't need to reinvent the wheel. Noted. I think it's an interesting point of view. I think your three points are very clear. You've already mentioned what you want the students to kind of focus on, uh, which is great. Um, I wanted to end, uh, I think we're running out of time, but I wanted to end with a, with a very simple question with regard to how do you see, and this is again, a, you can give your personal view, uh, not from a corporate perspective. How do you see the move? You know, we are used to a fragmented industry in the, in the dry bulk space, especially now we are actually seeing a multipolar world coming into being. We are looking at a multipolar world where the domination of a few countries is now being uh, substituted by a fragmentation where there are multiple players who are starting to play a bigger role in the trade of the commodities globally. And China is actually taking a smaller share. India is moving up and Africa is coming up and America is taking a backseat in some ways. How do you see this multipolar space handling? How do you, as a as a company which is obviously wanting to go and 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 uh, capture the market, um, how do you see the strategy going forward uh, for most shipping companies? Do you see them uh, opening up more offices, or do you see them uh, approaching more people using technology, for example, like uh, virtual spaces? Uh, what is your opinion on the managing the multipolar world when it comes to customers? If I can ask you, yeah. Well, there's absolutely no need to open up offices in various parts of the world unless you are a logistics company, you are a container company, and that you need to be close and you control the overall chain of, uh, of the product. Uh, the trade is so fragmented that no matter how many offices you open, you still will not be able to catch the whole thing. I mean, we are seeing companies opening up offices uh, where the crew members are, where the commercial centers are, where the technical centers are, and where the commercial centers are. And, uh, you know, you usually saw 
you know, more traditional companies having offices in New York, London, uh, Piraeus, uh, Singapore, uh, China, uh, Japan, and all that. So, in my opinion, this world is pretty much unnecessary. There's no need to do all that as long as you have good executives with appetite to travel the world around and communicate with people globally with all this technology that we have available, then I don't really see any point. I mean, people can operate from various parts of the world. I'm a big believer that the company needs to have a center base and all people need to be together instead of virtual or remote offices. We're fully flexible for our staff to work from home when it's needed. But um, shipping uh, is a collaboration of many different departments, operations, technical, crew, legal, finance, you name it. Now it's sustainability. You have so many new departments in shipping companies arising. So unless all the people are under the same roof, you cannot operate successfully in a truly international business like shipping, where you have multiple jurisdictions of the ships, multiple jurisdictions of the cargo, different shippers, different receivers, different countries, and things changing all the time. On board of assets that are worth anywhere between 20 and $200 million running around in all the edges of the world. So uh, that being said, I, I believe in the concentration of decision-making and operations. And at the same time, we encourage travel, education, and interaction with all the people because at the end of the day, shipping is a people's business. So, yes, it's capital intensive, but it's also a relationship incentive intensive, <laughs> if I can say. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And that, that's well said. I think it's a relationship intensive business as well. That's a good one. Um, and obviously, there is an ulterior motive to ask you that question because a lot of the listeners, as, as, uh, as you will see, uh, will be students in this case. And I want the students to kind of get a glimpse of what it will be to work with Synergy. Uh, going forward, and I am always curious to uh, to get into the head of the CEO and, and understand that. So thank you so much for that insight. I think we are out of time now, but Stamatis, it is always a super pleasure to talk to you and interact with you. Thank you so much for coming as a guest on our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Puneet. Thank you, Puneet, and thank you, Marcus. It's it's a great pleasure, and happy to be supporting the cause and guiding younger people in the future because I really believe that it's a transformative time for shipping. And the more people get out of the ordinary way of thinking and the more curious they are about the future, the more quality brains we're going to have in the space in the next 10, 20, 50 years. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stamatis and Punit. That is all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast.